Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive. All right, good morning and welcome back to the Money Advantage Podcast. I'm Rachel Marshall with you today. We have another special guest and we're continuing on this conversation about legacy transfer and how it relates to estate planning with this conversation today about estate plans that transcend generations. Now we're bringing Andrew Howell of York Howell and Guyman into the conversation today and I am really fascinated that we're just gonna be able to explore a wide range of topics, but most specifically, how to transfer a legacy that really does the most good in consecutive generations, and how to make sure that this is not just a transfer of money, the old way of doing an estate plan, but really an estate plan that does its most intended purpose and does the most good. So if you want to listen in to legacy wisdom from a highly recognized attorney who's worked with high and ultra high net worth families and business owners, this is the conversation for you today. So Andrew, good morning and welcome into the Money Advantage show. Uh, good morning to you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to, to chat about the stuff that really nobody ever wants to talk to a blood sucking vampire lawyer about. So it'll, <laughs> it'll, it'll be fun that you have an audience that wants to actually hear me speak. I love this. And, and Bruce and I have been talking about legacy for quite a while. And at the same time, this is something that is a conversation that I think is really, really needed. I think most people want to leave a legacy. Most people want to plan to leave a legacy, but most people don't do it very well. And so we want to hear all about your perspective in terms of the work that you've done. But first, I want to share a little bit about your bio. So Andrew L. Howell is, a co- is the co-founder of a Salt Lake City law firm, York Howell and Guyman and they're the fastest growing law firm in Utah. His focus is really on estate planning, asset protection planning, probate and estate administration, charitable giving, sophisticated business structuring, transactions, and tax planning. So that's just a wide swath to give you an idea of where his focus is. Now, he has also written two books, and you're going to hear about those today. One is called Entrusted, which is about passing on wealth to the next generation in a way that works well. They've also written, he's also written another book called Riveted, and we're going to dig into both of those briefly here today. He's widely recognized, and I also love that he's coming to us from his grandfather's um, cabin, I believe, in Montana today. And so he doesn't look like an attorney, but he's excellent one. So Andrew, well, can you. Yeah, I don't have to wear a tie today. Yeah, expl- it, it, we, uh, we have this this cherished family place that my grandpa bought a, about 25 years ago. And, and we get the privilege of being able to come up here and we usually spend the 4th of July and stuff up here. So, so you caught me uh, in, in leisure time and I don't have to be in the tie, but, but uh, that, that's a nice thing usually. Absolutely. Well, tell us a little bit of your backstory. I know your grandfather's a big part of your story um, and how he was an attorney with Walt Disney. Um, tell me about the work that brought you into estate planning in the first place. Uh, yeah, so I come from, it's funny, sometimes you'll find these, these legal families. Also, you find accounting families, right? And dental families where dad and son and grandpa were all of these same professions. And for some reason, everybody in my family are lawyers. Um, my, my grandfather was on both sides. My, my dad was an attorney. All my uncles are, my aunt was a judge. 
So our family reunions aren't that much fun, fun, right? But um, it, it sort of is something that I, 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 I clung to. And the reason for it is um, my dad and I would sit down at dinner and we would just sit there and debate. And I loved it. I loved the idea. I could play devil's advocate on both sides. And I debated all through high school and, and um, into college. And so I sort of knew I was, I was going into to law school. That's where I was headed. But my grandpa also um, very much practiced what we preach in our books, which is active involvement uh, with the family. Uh, and, and that goes in, into much more than just being present with your kids and all of those types of things. But uh, giving them education in the areas of the world that they're not receiving education at school, right? They're not learning financial management. They're not learning, you know, how to actually... Uh, be a profitable member of society. They, you know, they're learning arithmetic and all of, and with, like they should. But in the past, families used to really dedicate themselves to teaching that other stuff to their kids. And somewhere in in the history, we sort of we sort of lost that a little bit. So um, my grandpa, though, I didn't know that. I, I mean, I didn't know that's what sort of most families did because he was very active in my life at 13, 14 years old. He, I was in his office as a gopher, right, doing whatever he told me to do. But he was an estate lawyer of himself. Uh, himself, he was a Harvard law grad. In fact, uh, in our kind of little nerd world of estate planning, um, he's still known as as the dean of estate planning because um, nice. coming out of law school in the '40s from Harvard, he he started to write the book really about how families can transfer their wealth, and and that's kind of around the time when a lot of estate planning and even how it's done currently uh, structure-wise was built, right? Back in, in, in the 30s, 40s, that period of time. And, and so many lawyers still use that same template and it, it, it fails for a number of reasons and, and we'll talk about why. But just as an example, one of um, Utah's uh, very, very wealthy people, one of, his, one of the billionaires, um, an owner of an oil company, was a client of my grandfather's and uh, he was coming in for a meeting, just kind of a, a review meeting that we have typically with clients. And um, he was, he was, he was great. My grandpa said, Hey, do you mind if my grandson comes in and watches? He's, you know, he's not he's interested maybe in, in going into this area of the law. Now I'm 14 years old. And as I'm walking in the room, my grandpa puts his finger in my face and says, you sit there and shut up and, you know, just watch, uh, don't don't add anything, but you just kind of understand and, and observe. And I watched these two men, I mean, my grandpa, who was a behemoth in my life to begin with, and then I also knew who this other gentleman was, talk about um, a new asset that this gentleman had purchased. And, you know, when I'm talking with clients, it's uh, a new vacation property in Florida or something like this. This was four miles of oceanfront in Santa Barbara, California. And so a significant asset, right? And I, I never once heard my grandpa ask that, that man, how much is that property worth? Um, you know, what is the balance sheet number that we need to pay attention to? He started right in on, well, well what's the impact? You know, what, do you, what are you doing? What's the future of that property? And how is it playing into your overall family goals? And so that's how I was brought up doing estate planning. And when I got out of law school, um, I graduated from the University of Utah, and my grandpa always gave me grief, right? He went to Harvard, but I went to the <laughs> University of Utah. But, uh, I love him to death. He was one of my favorite people on the earth. But um, what happened is he, uh, I didn't want to come out of law school and, and, and work with him. I didn't like the nepotism that, that that 
and again, I don't have any, I mean, obviously there's lots of family businesses, but I instead went to a, join a larger firm in Salt Lake um, and uh, worked under a fabulous estate lawyer, right? I always think how important it is to have mentors in your life. And so out coming out of law school, um, this attorney really took me under his wing. And for seven years, I worked with him, but he did things a lot differently. Uh, their process was, I think, much more the standard process, which is, mm. feels very much like a trust mill. <laughs> um, and that trust mill, meaning that you, you get the data from the client, you sort of tell them what they need without hearing what they want to accomplish. You put together a set of documents that basically does the same thing, which is at their death, they're going to divide it amongst as many children as they have and then dump it onto them, you know, maybe at some point in time when they're older, 25, whatever, it's pretty typical. And, um, but, but the, whole, the whole conversation about what are you trying to accomplish with your assets in a long-term goal is lost. It just wasn't even being had in some situations. And we think that's really weird because, you know, as we're trying to build this thing for a client, let's call it an estate plan, or you could call it your house. This is like trying to build a house without having any blueprints, right? You don't mm-hmm. know what you're building. And so you put them in a standard sort of structure that, that, that more and more people who are becoming aware of other things that they can do are saying, I don't like that structure. And isn't there a way to sort of, um, sort of do more? So, um, after seven years, I left that firm, went out on my own for about a year, year and a half. Uh, my, my practice was kind of growing and I needed more help. And so um, I got the opportunity to join, to join another firm that was very well known for estate planning. Uh, in fact, the attorney that uh, was sort of the, the, the patriarch of the estate planning section there dated my mother in college, right? There's a reason oh, wow. that we call this thing small, small Lake city, but we know, we know of, um, we knew of each other and I was really honored cause he's got a great reputation and I got in there and that's actually where I met David York, my partner and co-author on the two books. And David and I um, have very, very different personalities, but for some reason when we get together, we just mesh really well, right? Kind of the yin and the yang. And one of the things, though, that we did have in common was this concept of estate planning not accomplishing the goals of our clients as they're demanding them now. And so we started to talk about a number of things um, in terms of making some changes to the firm culture at the time. The, the firm had some issues with it that we saw now that we were inside of it. Uh, they were kind of getting older and, and weren't billing as much and didn't want to incorporate technologies and so we said, okay, well, let's kind of go do this on our own. And so that's when we opened, uh, it was called Your Cowl in 2013. And then Paxton Guyman joined us about a year, year and a half later. And it's, um, we, we started it as, as to be just a sort of a boutique estate and tax planning firm. It, it, just, it just couldn't stay that way. Kind of organically, our clients needed more help. So, you know, Paxton's a fabulous real estate lawyer. He was voted, uh, voted real estate practitioner of the year in Utah last year. And, and, um, so brought a great real estate practice, you know, with him. And that's an important thing because one of the largest assets that our clients have is real estate. Uh, and so they typically have issues with that. Um, we needed a corporate section to do mergers, acquisitions, corporate transactions. And we were able to, um, do a lateral hire from a, another firm in Salt Lake to, to bring a, a great guy across to, to do that. And he leads a team. Um, and then we have a, you know, kind of a, a litigation uh, section that'll handle our clients' matters. Uh, and then we have our trust and estate section, which is, 
right now eight attorneys solely concentrating on kind of this tax and estate stuff. I think it is the largest estate group in Utah. And we've really tried to, to build that expertise. Basically, David and I trying to hire people that are smarter than us. Um, and we've been successful with that. We've got, um, you know, hopefully four lawyers with their master's, their master's degree in taxation. And that's an important thing. David's a CPA as well being as being an attorney. So he's doubly fun to go to dinner with. But um, it's, uh, it, we try to build that structure to be able to represent our clients in, in, in what we like to represent them in. We don't do, um, we don't do any kind of criminal work or anything like that. Our divorce work is very, very minimal. Uh, but, but we like to say that we're, we know a whole lot about a very small area of the law and, and we certainly love what we do. And, and, and then that led into the, to the writing of the books. Um, in 2015, I, I went to David and I said, look, you and I have all of these ideas and what we've seen families do successfully. And why don't we put that together in a, in a book? Cause there's books out there. I mean, there's lots of books on this. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and when we were writing in 2015, although that's changed now, there's other books that are out now, um, there used to be sort of two different types of books. The books that were really touchy-feely, meaning that they get into, hey, well, what you want to do for your family is not just pass on the wealth, but, but, but create this you know, I, you know, utopia world of them you know, being entrepreneurs and all of these different kind of things. And, and those are again, great ideals. I, I certainly believe in all of those things. But the books didn't tell you how to do it, right? Mm-hmm. And then there were the other books, which, which were kind of the legal treatises that tell you how to do it, but no rational person but us sick lawyers want to actually read. So how do you, how, we, what we try to do is kind of put this together. And um, there's, there's some pretty key principles that we see uh, in families that have successfully navigated this transfer of wealth from one generation to the next. Um, right in our, in our, in our book entrusted, we use the analogy of, of a bridge, right? You're trying to bridge that gap between one generation to the next. And then how do you, how do you bring that bridge together? Um, as opposed to just dumping them on it at the time of your passing as a surprise. Again, they're knowing what to expect, but as you know, in reading the book, we go and and go into a lot more of that detail, but, um, it was a roadmap for people to sort of say, okay, these are the things that we as a family need to consider if we want something more than the old estate planning uh, uh, function, meaning more legacy, more impact, and so forth with the assets we leave our kids. Uh, but when we wrote the book, we then immediately got a little bit of backlash, not in terms of the message. I think it was well-received, but how do we start this discussion? Because we were sort of surprised, again, at least I was, because this was always something that was common in my family, open discussions. We were brought into meetings with financial advisors and accountants. And by the time I'm 14, 15 years old, I'm speaking that stupid language, right? I understand what a put option is, for example. And it was, it was just, again, how I was raised. And I just wasn't, you know, sort of privy to the fact that, that, that people weren't raised that way. So they said, look, how do we begin these conversations with our family? And that's when we sort of honed in on these 44 values and we identify these in trust in entrusted, but these 44 values that are, that are positive values, because there's definitely negative values, but these are positive values that we feel um, people hold dear because right, Rachel, what your personal values are going to be different, Bruce, than what your personal values are and certainly what my personal values are. And mine are going to be different than my wife's and different than our kids. Mm-hmm. And, you know, but maybe as a family, we could also have some, some collective core values. And we thought that that was a great way to begin the discussion. Hey, look, 
rather than as a family, we're all going to sit down and uh, say what we all think is wrong with each other. Why don't we sit down and, and tell each other what we think is right, right? Let's, let's play this game. And we developed a, a, a board game um, called Rivets. And it's basically a 44 deck playing card. And it's a trading game. You, by the end of the game, right, Rachel, you'd wind up with your five core values because you'd have to give up the ones that were less important. You come up with those hierarchies. And what's interesting about that is that we find that, that values have very much been shaped by your life experiences, right? Um, like, let's say, for example, one of my life or, or one of my core principle values is honesty, um, which sounds crazy coming from a lawyer, right? But it could be that the reason is, is that sometime early on in my life, there was a person that was very, very dishonest with me. And as a result, it created that, that wall of protection for me to protect myself saying, in any real relationship that I have, meaningful relationship, because we have meaningless relationships all the time, right? That periphery relationship and, hey, how are you, right? But I mean a true meaningful mm -hmm. relationship. There has to be the element of honesty. Now, what does that do? Well, when I'm having this discussion with my children, I don't have to say, look, you know, Thomas, I think you were pretty dishonest the other day, and that goes against my values. I get to say one of my core values is honesty, and this is why. And I give them that whole life experience of, of what I went through. And, and that sort of passing on storytelling in families has been lost. But this is the way to begin the discussion, right? And then my son gets to come up with his five core values, and he gets to tell me why those are meaningful to him. But what I can also do is substantiate that. I could say, yeah, I see that courage is one of your core values. I've seen you do this and this and this, right? And you're validating these positive values. Um, and that was a, a big change, actually, for people to really be able to start that discussion with the family. But what it also does is it gives us that North Star. At the end of the game, the, the family has its core values, what they have all collectively come together and said what makes them unique and important and what do they want to pass on. And now we have the ability to structure their estate plan to reach that goal because we know what the goal is. Um, we've also done this and we, we, we do this a lot within the corporate setting, right? I've done this with my team because what that allows me to know is what are each of their core values. And as I am assigning project or work to them, I might say, look, this is more of an artistic type of a project that I need this person to take on because they have that more artistic quality than other person does. Um, it, it allows us to be more efficient. Again, it allows you to validate your team members and your employees, which is a horribly important thing to do. Um, so that led us into 2018 to write the second book called Riveted, where um, we, we uh, and by the way, I should, have, I should have prefaced this. The reason we use rivets as a symbol is as that bridge analogy. Well, the bridge is uh, held yeah. together by rivets, mm -hmm. right? And so these 44 <clears throat> values are the rivets that are holding that bridge together, bridging the gaps between the generations. So uh, what we did is in, in Riveted, we have a couple of, of introductory uh, uh, chapters that explain this, how the correlation between values and, and um, life experience relate. And it, it really does. It's amazing. And uh, then we basically tell a short story about each of these 44 values. We try to uh, pick a historic figure that has exemplified one of them. And we try to pick a historic figure that you wouldn't normally think of, but for some reason they exhibited the quality of, of honesty or integrity or whatever it might be. So um, 
anyway, those are, that's sort of how that's all come to be. And that was in 2018. And then in the last couple of years, we've had some uh, financial planning firms really see this as an opportunity to create a deeper relationship with their clients. Because that's one of the problem with a, a lot of, you know, kind of financial planners or stockbrokers or whatever, is that a lot of times they can be beat performance wise, 95% of the time by a computer. Right? So why am I paying this huge fee to a financial advisor if they can be beat by a computer anyway? Well, we think the future has to be them creating more of a personal relationship with their families and their clients and, and even their children so that they have multi-generational levels of representation. And the way to do that is to not first go to the meeting with a client and say, how much money do you have? You first go in and say, what are you trying to accomplish? What is your family culture? How educated is your family on this? How often do you speak about it? Do you have communication styles that allow for that? And, and it's an interesting thing. We, we find a lot of times families don't like talking about this stuff. Again, this isn't fun, right, Bruce? Like you were saying, I think earlier, that, that this is not stuff that people want to do. 70% of the population never does any estate planning. And it always amazes me that that many people don't want to take control of the decisions they have the ability to control. I mean, even beyond all of this lofty legacy stuff that we're talking about, you know, they need basic estate planning with wills and trusts and power of attorney documents so that if they can't make their own decisions or they can't be the guardians of their children, they're choosing those people of who should do that rather than hoping the court is going to choose the right person for them. Because, you know, these 70% of the people who don't have an estate plan, well, they actually do. It's called the probate code. And every state in the nation has a law that says how your assets are going to pass if you fail to plan otherwise. And I'm a big fan of, of not failing to plan otherwise. So, um, it, it, but it's not fun, right? Because you're talking about your own mortality and so forth. But if you, if you bring in this topic of legacy and that we're not just talking about something happens when you die, how can your legacy live on, you know, through future generations, people get much more interested in, in talking through this stuff than otherwise. I love that you bridged so much value in that. And I think, I mean, whenever you talk about legacy at all, I think the starting point of the conversation is, I mean, I, you even brought this out in your book, Entrusted. There's 3% of, or maybe only 3% of the boomer generation even believes that they have an obligation to leave an inheritance to future generations. And now that's not to point fingers at the boomer generation and say they're bad. It's to say, where did we get this idea or this concept that we don't desire or need or, or want to pass on a legacy? And how do we bridge that? Because truly, I believe that we all have the ability to leave a legacy. And the earlier we start in that planning process and thinking long range, thinking multi-generationally beyond ourselves, the more capability we have to do the most good in the world. And I love that you're, um, so let's just start there for a second. Why do most people not start the estate planning conversation? And what is the, the push that you feel that people need in order to really value that as a, a, something that they need to do? It's a great question. I, I think you look at it from a standpoint of, of a hierarchy of priorities. Uh, let me explain. Um, 
going back again through the generations, sort of where estate planning birth was, like I said, 30s, 40s, whatever, may have been even a little bit earlier than that in terms of the ideals that caused the its original sort of its original birth, which was the greatest generation, right? Our grandparents living through a a period of time that's unlike anything we've ever lived through. Right. We lived through the Great Recession where, you know, we've got COVID, we've got riots and all of these different kind of things. And we're all um, maybe unhappy. But during the Great Depression, they weren't eating. Right. There was literally, how am I going to feed my family? And my grandpa had this great saying I always loved, which is that money isn't everything, but it sure quiets the nerves. Right. And so as they come out of the Great Depression and they start gathering assets and they're able to feed their family, that was a security blanket, right? That made them feel safe. And a lot of what we do as human beings, we search for safety. And that meant that assets became very, very, very important. Okay? And therefore, the estate planning got set up in such a way that what we want to do is focus on the assets. How can we pass the most amount of wealth with tax planning and all of these various things to the next generation so they have that same security blanket? right? It was done out of love. Of course it was. I mean, we all love our children. The impact though is where I think we answer your question. The baby boomer generation now comes in, arguably the most affluent generation through American history. And they now have the ability to not worry about where their next meal is coming from. And they start turning to other topics like social change. And we have the sixties and the revolutions that went on there. Um, now, our world today seems very interesting in terms of similarities there, but uh, the, the, the point of that is that that generation didn't have to um, put as much emphasis on wealth, right? The, a lot of the times it was inherited. There was a lot of an inherited wealth during that generation. Um, and you don't, you don't value something nearly as much as if you earned it yourself, right? Mm-hmm. If somebody gives you something, yeah, it, you know, so that generation would see the the negative effects of inherited wealth, right? That's where the whole trust fund baby uh, sort of uh, uh, term came into play. In our book, we use the, the term trustafarians, right? But it's mm-hmm. this idea of the child sitting on the couch eating bonbons because they have so much money, they don't have to do anything. And um, there really is a value to creating something in your life, right? The mm-hmm. purpose that that gives you beyond what somebody else gives you, whether it be for your own self-worth at the very least. So what happened is because of this pendulum swing of a lot of, 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 of negative effects of inherited wealth, that generation went the other way, completely the other way and said, well, we're not giving it to our kids. They don't have any right to it. They didn't earn it. Well, what we'll do is we'll give it to charity. Okay. And I always thought that was an interesting statement because the mm-hmm. charities didn't earn it either, right? Mm-hmm. So you're saying, look, I'm giving this one person who didn't earn it rather than these people who, you know, hopefully I love who, yeah, may cause problems for them if we don't structure it the right way. Um, but that's the point. You structure it the right way. And that's where our generation is coming in. You know, can't we have both? Can't we have the, the financial wealth, the security, even the profitability? right? We like our generations to be, to be wealthy in, in and of themselves. I'd love to be able to, my deathbed, think two things of my children equally. That number one, I can give them everything and they can manage it a whole lot better than I can because they're yeah. a lot smarter and more capable than me. 
but I would also love to be able to look at them and say, I don't have to leave you anything because you can make it on your own. Mm-hmm. My kids are not there at this point, right? They're 14, 12, and 10. And current behavior is not pointing to the brightest future, but hopefully I've got time to turn this thing around. But that's the point is that can't you do both? And that's exactly where this legacy comes into play, right? If you were to read my trust document, you'd see that the first 30 pages of it don't have anything to do with the assets. It's a purpose that my wife and I have established in determining, you know, what are the things that we would ultimately want future generations to use these assets for? Like education. Let's use that, use that as an example. I spent a lot of time in education, right? And, and I'm not saying it's not valuable, but a lot of times I don't feel like I started learning until after I graduated from law school, mm-hmm. right? I've read books. I've attended seminars that have changed my life. I want lifelong learning with my kids. I've traveled to places that have given me education beyond belief, right? And anytime I travel out of the country, I learn about a new culture. Also times often makes me really like the culture I live in. So I want my kids to experience that as well. And so we have a whole purpose of trust in there on what we believe is education, not just formal education, but secondary forms. And we incentivize our kids to do those kinds of things. So even though we leave the assets for the benefit of the kids, it's not just then for them to go out and buy Ferraris. I'm nothing against Ferraris, beautiful cars. And if they can make the money to buy one themselves, go for it. But if they're using the money I left them to buy Ferraris, not only am I going to haunt them, the way that I have my estate planning set up is that they don't get to be in control of anything more because they're blowing through those assets. They're not using it for those stated purposes. You know, Andrew, uh, I think, oh, go ahead, Bruce. Well, Andrew, I, I hear what you're saying, and I see the. I've seen uh, some of the things you're talking about, especially about not the attitude of, "Well, I've done enough for my children." Getting, let me stop. Are you getting some wind feed? Just a little bit of wind. Can you still hear me? Okay. Just yes, a little bit of wind, but you're thing. okay. I might step. It, it looks like it's coming up a little bit. Let me step inside. All right. Is that, that better, you guys? Yes. Yeah. So far. So okay, I'm sorry about that. That's, that's all right. Okay. So I, I've, I've experienced what you were talking about as far as people saying, well, you know, I've done enough for my kids. I don't want to leave them anything. They don't deserve it. Or the fear of if I leave them something, it will change them. And I'm, I, I actually don't have any children. And my wife and I have nieces and nephews. And yet we feel like we can actually leave a legacy of not only knowledge and uh, character development, but also of money, which I feel, and this might get a little political, but I like to hear your thoughts about the, the people that you've, um, you've uh, actually experienced this, is that what we're doing as far as inflating the money supply in the United States and frankly around the world we are actually um, doing that on the backs of our children, grandchildren, and frankly, children that haven't even been born yet. And so when a person says, oh, well, I made it, I made it on my own, they're going to have to make it on their own. Well, no, you, you actually are benefiting from something that's actually not going to be beneficial to somebody in, you know, in future generations. So anything that you can do to actually teach them to be more maybe entrepreneurial or have a better um, uh, way to a better problem solving. And Oh, by the way, maybe having enough money to actually overcome the amount of debt we're putting on them. That might be a good thing to kind of level the playing field. That's a great way to think about it, Bruce. In fact, I've 
I never even thought about it that way. So um, yeah, I think that's a great answer to somebody that says I made it on my own. I mean, look, you made it on your own under a, a, a completely different set of circumstances. Um, and, and there's so many different ways. You know, one of the things that a client did recently in their estate plan and their legacy plan is he set up basically his family as an entire bank. Let mm -hmm. me explain. In, in the world of wealth transfer, there's, there's three erosive effects that we find. Um, it, it, the first erosive effect is something that we, we talked about a little bit already, but let me dive into it. Dividing the assets, right? If you take a, an estate that is worth $100 million and no other factors in play, and, 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 and husband and wife have four children, and those four kids each have four kids who have four kids. By the time you get down to that grandchild or great-grandchild level, that results in a $330,000 inheritance from a $100 million estate from division alone. And that's what typically everybody's estate plan says, right? At my death, I've got three kids. It's going to divide three-way. And the, power, the problem with that is that you lose the power to the asset, right? And in Trusted, we analogize financial assets to dynamite. It's not good or bad. It just can be used for good or bad. You can make roads, build tunnels, or you can build bombs. But the, the, the interesting thing about both dynamite and financial wealth is that it's going to make an impact. Mm -hmm. It's how big of an impact is it going to make. And too many people have their estate plan set up that here's a stick of burning dynamite. I hope you don't blow yourself up. But the other analogy with dynamite is, again, going back to this idea of power. You can get into a deal at $10 million that you can't get into at a million dollars if your estate is divided 10 ways. So we're losing the power of those financial assets as well. Mm -hmm. um, so so divide, division of the estate is an erosive effect. Another erosive effect is estate taxes. Right, right now, probably it doesn't affect most people. Um, every U.S. citizen is entitled to a credit against the estate tax. The estate tax right, is this tax that at death if you've been too financially successful, the federal government wants to come in and, and tax you again. Some states have this at the state level as well, but um, let's just talk about the feds. Um, now, right now, there's a credit, meaning an amount that you can pass a state tax-free that's really high. It's $11.58 per person, so a married couple could pass $23.16 million entirely as state tax-free. Most of us don't have positive net worths in excess of $23 million. And this is why there isn't rioting in the streets about this. Because if every U.S. citizen had to pay 40% tax on assets they've been paying taxes on their entire life at their death, there'd be an uprising. But it only affects those people who have estates above $23 million because every dollar above that now gets subject to a 40% tax. Mm -hmm. But this could change. And it could change as quickly as November, right? Um, if Biden elect is elected president, and we're not talking politics here, but if that happens, he has said that he will change the estate tax. Um, he said a number of times the first thing that he would do when he comes into office is to eliminate the Trump tax reform. And what that would mean is we'd go back to an exemption amount of about $5 million per person or $10 million as a married couple with, he's saying right now, I think a 35% tax and anything over and above that. And $10 million is still a lot of money. But when you start including the value of your estate that the IRS would include in your estate, well, it includes all business interests that you own. And what is your business worth? Well, unless it's publicly traded, we don't know. But the IRS is certainly going to try to tack on a value. And if your company is pretty profitable, they may think it's worth a whole lot more than you did. Mm -hmm. And one of the issues of the estate tax also is that when it is owed, 
It has to be paid nine months following that person's date of death, and it has to be paid in cash. So where a lot of our clients' assets are illiquid with real estate or uh, closely held corporate stock in a company they own, those are not liquid assets. And if you're trying to come up with cash, we are having to sell those assets within nine months and you're not getting the best price for them. So this estate tax is an insidious one that we need to think um, planning around. Now, this is, of course, where the estate and tax attorney comes in because there's plenty of strategies, you know, well-proven techniques that we can use to you know, get as stinking wealthy as possible. We just need to get in and plan around it, but that needs to be taken into consideration because I don't want a 40% haircut at every generation that the federal government takes from your estate. And there is going to be this phenomenon that occurs. In fact, my my partner, David York, had done a, after we wrote our book, did a TEDx talk on our, on our book. And it's called the $40 trillion tsunami. And um, what this is, is that in the next 30 years, there's going to be the largest wealth transfer in human history. $40 trillion is going to change hands from one generation to the next. And um, I think going back, Bruce, to your point, we've got a lot of bills to pay. And, and if the IRS could get a piece of that $40, $40 trillion transfer, I think they're very well going to try to do it. So the, the idea here is estate tax planning is something that needs to at least be considered, especially for the higher net worth client. And then the, the third erosive effect, right? So we talked division of assets. We talked to state taxes. Third erosive effect is the mismanagement of the funds or third-party attacks, meaning how most people's estate plan is set up is that, yeah, something happens to us. Each of our kids gets a trust. Uh, this is if they've done their estate plan, actually. Each of our gets, kids gets a trust with an equal portion of the estate. It's there for their health, education, maintenance, and support. But then at the age of 25, we're going to turn it all over to them. Well, now it's theirs. And it becomes their asset that they could accidentally commingle with marital assets and a divorce occurs and now it's being taken by that divorcing spouse. It's certainly their asset if they were to ever go through a bankruptcy or get involved in a lawsuit and have a creditor coming after them. So proper estate planning can protect that where the, the beneficiary never gets the asset outright. So it's not available to, to their creditors, but it's in a trust for their benefit mm -hmm. to pay for health, education, maintenance, support, all of the family purposes and values that may have been outlined. So we, we, we really try to deal with those three erosive effects. I have no idea if I answered your question. <laughs> no, no, you did, you did perfectly. Um, because I think people don't understand all these kind of eroding effects. And the other thing, I can remember when the exemption, the estate tax exemption was only a million dollars per person. Yeah, well, that was, I mean, and it wasn't yeah, technically that speaking, <laughs> no, technically speaking, it was only seven and a half years ago. I, I mean, I don't know if people remember this, but there was this whole de debacle going on in kind of 2011 through 2013, where it was this fiscal cliff that was going to hit us, right? And we were all going to die. Now, lo and behold, the world is still turning and the sky is still blue, right? But um, the idea was is that the Bush era tax cuts were going to automatically expire and we would go back to 2001. Now, interestingly enough, the Trump tax cuts work very much the same way. They were both passed through the budgetary process. And uh, back in 1976, Senator Byrd put this rule that if the change in a budget created a larger deficit, that law only could last for a certain period of time. And, and when Bush did this in 2001, the, the change to the deficit allowed his laws to go on for 10 years. Trump's tax reform will end in 2026. Now, theoretically, there'll be another fiscal cliff, fiscal, fiscal cliff there. 
Now, we fell off the fiscal cliff. Uh, in 2001, um, the fiscal cliff, or 2013, excuse me, we fell off the fiscal cliff because there was no agreement to extend the Bush era tax cuts. Now, the next day, January 2nd, they adopted ATRA, uh, the American Taxpayer Relief Act of 2012. But for that one day, we had a $1 million credit against the estate tax with a 55% tax on anything over and above. And you think about that, I mean, a million dollars is still a lot of money, but man, that gets eaten away really, really quickly. And you just don't know what's going to happen in the future. This really will be a political thing. Bernie Sanders, for example, wanted it to be a, a three and a half million dollar credit against the estate tax with a 55 to a 77% tax rate, depending upon how large your estate was. So it's going to depend and it'll fluctuate through your life as, as politics shift as well. But not only, not only about preserving the asset, uh, but it's also about uh, making sure that your wishes of, of current family things are, are going to be carried out in case something tragic happens to you. Um, Correct. Yeah, one, 100%. I agree. And the, the issue with that is how, you know, what do families need to start with first? And I always like our first chapter in Trusted, which is that, that entrusted families, these are kind of the people we, we think do this well, entrusted families, they know who they are and what they believe in. And, and it's a surprising, I think, few amount of families that ever spend any time thinking about that. And that's where, you know, Rivets comes into play to start the discussion of, of, of what are our values and, and who are we really as a family? Because that has to be number one. I mean, I can have a family come in and I can say, look, you have no estate planning documents and I can get you better protected and better situated to cover some of the more you know, legal aspects of avoiding probate and all of these different kind of things. But then the hard work comes in and it really is. It's hard work. It's deeper thinking than a lot of families have, have, have ever had to do. Now, we have a whole process that, that we take clients through. Um, we have a facilitator plays the game with them. We have an online assessment program that'll give every member of the family a score. Um, and, and, and that now allows that first discussion to be much more meaningful. So, and there, there's, there's more and more of these resources that are coming out. And the reason for it is that the, they're demanding it. It's being demanded. People are saying, nah, I, I, I'd rather give it to charity than give it to my kids. And you say, well, wait a minute. What if we could, we could deal with your concerns that your kids are not going to appreciate it or, they're not going to be you know, productive in their own life. What if we can set it up in a way that they have to be? That in order to have access to these assets, well, they're not going to be given these assets. It's going to be a loan. And this is one of the, what one of my clients did. He created a trust at his death, and it's for all of his beneficiaries. So it doesn't get divided. It's the mind shaft approach, right? We're not mm -hmm. dividing it as one of those um, erosive factors. But all of the assets sit in the trust, and they can be used disproportionately depending upon what the beneficiaries want to use it for. And I like this because I'm a big fan of a quality of opportunity. I know each of my mm -hmm. kids are going to take a different life path. And, you know, my daughter may go to ballet school. My son may become a forest ranger. Uh, the other one, you know, is either going to go to Harvard or the state penitentiary. But if he gets into Harvard, well, well, that's fine. I'll help him pay that tuition. And his life is going to be more expensive than the child that turns the you know, takes the forest service route. They both could have gone to Harvard. They both could have done the forest service route. And so, but the, the, the assets there is a pot still having that power and can be used disproportionately according to our stated purposes. Well, what this gentleman had done is he created an entrepreneurial mindset where each of his kids could uh, borrow 
money from the trust and didn't matter if it was a hundred dollars or whatever. And he, he created it. So they had to build credit. So if they borrowed a hundred bucks and they paid it back, they would now have $200 credit and then 500 and then a thousand, it would go up creating accountability. If they also took a, a loan from the family, I don't care if it was for a lemonade stand or something else, they have to come back to the other family members at right, the other children and, and give a state of the business. What's going on? What's, what, did, what did you do right? Because I know my kids are going to fail, right? We learn more from our failures than we do from our successes. Mm-hmm. But what I don't want is for each of my kids to make the same mistake. And if they can teach each other, hey, this is what we did right in business. This is what we did wrong. Then hopefully they're not just creating a culture of accountability. They're also teaching each other and they're, they're staying together. So I really like that idea. I actually kind of incorporated it into my own planning. So the, the, the world is endless in how you do this. And, and, and because of the new tools that are coming out with things like impact investing and other things where it, it makes sense to our generation, where we're creating sort of public good along with an impact for our family, it, it's, it's, it's just going to be an ever-changing world. Well, I think it's interesting um, because I heard this from a client one time. They said that, Equal is not always fair. And then, and then Dan Sullivan, who I kind of follow, I don't know if you know him or not, Andrew, Absolutely. strategic coach, he says it's yep. not about fairness, it's about usefulness. And so, yeah, we say, in our, we say in our book, the most unfair thing to do is to treat unequal people fairly, right? It's the most unfair mm-hmm. thing to do. Absolutely. Yeah, Dan Sullivan's great. And, and, um, uh, we love strategic coaching, um, good friends with Kim Butler. He used to be a good part of that and so forth. So, no, I, I, I agree with that, that a hundred percent. Well, Andrew, I think this conversation is so fascinating and I think I could just let you talk for a very long time. And really the reason <laughs> is that there's just so much wisdom packed into what you're sharing, because when I come into this whole conversation, my vantage point is saying, okay, I want to create wealth. I am creating wealth with my family. I have super young children. I have a daughter who's one right now and a daughter who's eight. And if I don't get the opportunity to live with them and build this character and help them understand stewardship and teach all the entrepreneurship, the eight-year-old, she's starting to get it already. She has her own little businesses and operations that she's running. But at the same time, if they don't mature all the way through, and for some reason I am not prohibited, if I'm prohibited from having that opportunity to raise her in the way that I want to, I want to make sure that capital, financial capital is there for my children to be able to be successful. So that's my current level of thinking that I have to prioritize. But at the same time, what I ultimately want is to create that family banking system where you're talking about the the assets are held completely in trust and the family members have that accountability to be able to use the wealth grow the family wealth, think long range so that you're having this Rockefeller family type of approach where you are continuing to keep the wealth in the family, but you are motivating and incentivizing each child to maintain their, to really live their greatest life and to maximize their stewardship. And I think ultimately what we want to create is our children and grandchildren and children after that to be the fullest version of themselves and to really live out everything that they are called to live and that they're put on this earth to live and to have as many financial resources as possible to do that, but then as well have that value system, that legacy of value that matches up with it. It's not just money. It's not just the values and the teaching, but how do you do both together? And I think the reason why we wanted to even have you on the show is just the way that you you 
conceptualize all of that in this entrusted planning, this idea of entrusting future generations with this wealth so that they can continue to have a greater impact and do the most good. And uh, so I think you've really just hit on so many of the topics that we wanted to discuss today even. I would love to ask you really directly if you can share, in your book you mentioned that giving all the money to charity creates a lost opportunity for the family themselves. And I find this to be very true, but I would love to hear your perspective on that just as we bring this towards a close. Well, I think, again, it goes back to this stupid analogy of dynamite. You've given all the power away. You've given your tool. You've given, again, if we, if we harness that dynamite and put in, in impactful reasons that it's going to be used in the future, and we put responsible people in charge of it, uh, and, and we create accountability with the beneficiaries of it, you, you can avoid that, that, that blowing up scenario. But if you just give all of the dynamite to, to charity, you don't have a carrot. Right? You've given away all of the power. You don't have the incentive for your future generations to, to learn about you, follow your guidelines, understand why those values are important. Right? They just have a bunch of words on paper because it's a trust that, that you wrote, but it doesn't have any assets inside of it. You're, you're in essence, it, it's a really interesting thing. You're passing your stewardship. Right? Mm-hmm. I, I, I take money management and the assets that I control as a stewardship position. Right? I'm managing them at least right now. And at some point in time when I die, somebody else is going to manage them. I'm a steward over them. But by, by taking that stewardship and just giving it to charity, you've sort of taken the easy way out, right? It's you're saying, I don't want to put the work in necessary to do something for my loved ones where I can create an amazing benefit for them without the negative effects that make me want to give it to charity. Now, Sometimes it could be that the family culture is so far gone that it it wouldn't make sense to give the kids those assets. I have yet to find a family culture like that. And we've dealt with some really interesting ones. Um, And one of the big things that we think is important to turn a family culture around is uh, bringing in concepts of generosity, right? We whole have a whole chapter in entrusted about, you know, our family, our entrusted families, they have, some sort of level of generosity involved in their planning. I don't care if it's you know charity or whatever. Um, it's just that there's something bigger than themselves, the family mm. that they all see as an important goal. And I think that's an important thing also. That's excellent. And I think um, just this whole idea of being able to pass on your values to your children and have a purpose and an intent behind everything that you're doing financially. It's not just that burning dynamite. It's not just a log from a fire. I know you have that analogy in your book as well. It's not just this, let me hand you money without really passing on the purpose and the intent behind that and helping you to flourish. Because I think ultimately we want to give our kids the ability to flourish because of our love. And you kind of showed with each generation what the difference of that looked like from um, just giving wealth versus withholding wealth and how we're in a position now of recognizing the need that, that we can do both. The need to give our children and grandchildren the financial means, but also the vision and the value system and the, the wisdom to be able to stand on our shoulders and become smarter than we are and do as great of good in the world as possible. So Andrew, as, as we're bringing this to a close, how does somebody reach out to you if they're interested in working with you or accessing your book or playing the rivets game? How can they get in touch with you? Uh, so email is always the best and it's a corny email. It's uh, teenandrew at yourcowl.com. 
uh, T-E-A-M-A-N-D-R-E-W at yourcal.com. And that goes to me and, and my, my, my team, my paralegals and, and assistants so that we don't ever miss an email. Um, but yeah, I'd love to, I'd love to speak to anybody. And then which, which states can you guys work in? So I actually have clients in all 50 states, uh, to be honest. I'm licensed in five, soon to be six directly. But the way that the, the Bar Association, the ABA rules work on this, I can represent anybody as long as it's um, uh, originating from a state where I'm licensed, meaning like I'm not licensed in Illinois, but I also don't have an office there and I don't have a billboard soliciting work. But if an Illinois resident calls me and says, hey, can you help me with your with my estate planning, I was practicing in Utah or Wyoming or Montana or wherever I'm licensed. So I can represent them. Uh, the second requirement though is the big one. It's that I've got to feel that I can do the work competently. And that's always the big if. But you know, after 19 years and doing this, um, I know what I'm good at and I know what I'm not. I'll always be the first one to say, look, I can't help you with something and I'll try to help you find somebody that can. It's usually more of a convenience factor with a person out of state not being able to walk into my office and sign a document. I, I've just never found that to be a big issue just with technology as we've mm -hmm. all seen through this whole COVID crisis. Uh, but um, anyway, I, I, it, it really, it, it doesn't matter to me. Obviously, international is a problem unless they're also U.S. residents. Um, if uh, Again, it doesn't have to be a U.S. citizen, but U.S. resident. But other than that, pretty much open. Great. Excellent. And I do also want to share on the podcast that you can go to yourcowl.com. You can also go to entrustedplanning.com. And I know that there's a lot of your book resources available there. And that looks like just a place where they can initiate a conversation, but they can also just email you directly. Yep. And both books are on Amazon and Audible. And, and the, the problem though on Audible, the first book, Entrusted, I read it. So you have to listen to my horrible voice for four and a half hours. But the next book, Riveted, we had one of my clients who's a, uh, an Emmy award-winning voice actress read it. And so she's actually pleasant to listen to. So uh, I, I, I can't read books. I read so much during the day that I, and I love books, but I have to have that audible to get through them. And Audible is extremely valuable, especially for people who are busy all the time. And you can plug it in and play right. while you're running, walking making dinner, whatever you're doing. So the names of those books, the full name is Entrusted, Building a Legacy That Lasts, and Riveted, 44 Values That Change the World. So just so you have those full titles of those books. Now, in closing, I want to let you know that if you have heard anything today about building a legacy and creating wealth in your family and that lasts for generations, if you're interested in this concept, we would love to talk to you further. Privatized banking or infinite banking is a huge part of that. And Andrew, I know you mentioned building a family banking system. Part of doing that is with whole life insurance that is privatized banking or infinite banking. And we have more resources and tools available on that. You can go to privatizedbankingsecrets.com slash free guide to get a just a free available information that you can learn and understand how this cash value and death benefit component improve not only your own life, but also the lives of generations that come after you. And then if you're interested in coming into a financial conversation to really coordinate all of your assets and make sure that they're all doing the most good for you so that you can live your best life today and pass on the greatest legacy. We'd love to talk to you and you can book that calendar appointment at themoneyadvantage.com slash calendar. So again, Andrew, thank you so much for being with us on this show today. I think you've provided a ton, a ton of value. Is there anything that you want to leave our, our audience with as we close? No, I, I really appreciate the chance. I, any time I get a chance to hear myself talk, I'll do it. But I'd love to come on, talk deeper into other subjects. In fact, 
um, even the infinite banking stuff with whole value cash value policies and, and explaining how that weaves into this legacy planning and how it can be used for some of that family banking and entrepreneurial mindset and accountability with loans to kids. It's a, it's a fabulous way to do it. Oh, that's awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much. If you have had your um, ears perked at anything specific that you want to hear more about, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach out to us at themoneyadvantage.com. So again, remember, thanks for listening. And in closing, success leaves clues. So model the successful few, not the crowd, and build a life and business you love. Discover the secret of how to earn a return on the same money in two places at the same time so that you can strengthen your investment returns. We've created a free guide for you that explains the top three things every investor needs their privatized banking system to do. Go to themoneyadvantage.com banking, put in your name and primary email address, click the send my free guide button right now and we'll see you on the inside. Thank you for listening to the Money Advantage podcast. Today's show notes and resources are available for you on themoneyadvantage.com. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe and leave a review. If you have any questions or desire to speak with a qualified financial professional after listening to today's podcast, we encourage you to reach out to us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com or check us out at themoneyadvantage.com. The opinions and views expressed here are for informational purposes only. This material is educational in nature and should not be deemed as a solicitation of any specific product or service. All investments involve risk and a potential loss of principal. Kalos Capital Incorporated nor Kalos Management Incorporated offer tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax advisor or attorney for advice regarding the impact on your portfolio. Securities offered through Kalos Capital Incorporated member FINRA, SIPC, MSRB, and investment advisory services offered through Kalos Management Incorporated and registered investment advisor, both located at 11525 Parkwood Circle, Alpharetta, Georgia. E3 Consultants Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Kalos Capital Incorporated or Kalos Management Incorporated.